0: You are listening to the Doc Doc Goose Podcast.
1: hello and welcome to another episode of the doc doc goose podcast we are the podcast that is never politically correct and always typically compliant my name is sean palmer i am one of your docs here is benjamin imes he is your other doc here i am
0: dr benjamin imes
1: and instead of a goose we have another doc on tonight here is Dr. Brian Liddell back with us. Hey, hey guys. Glad to be back. Yeah. Um, I think uh, if we have two physicians on here, I believe that bumps me to the goose roll. Uh, 100% it does. Because I know the least about these things now, so I am your fill-in goose. Proud to take that role. I, I do expect
0: to hear a honk honk from you every now and then. I think that's...
1: Honk. Honk. As the goose, it's my job to keep you both on your toes. So <laughs> I accept this job willingly, Perfect. let's have some fun.
0: Here is our disclaimer. While one of the three of us are very, very smart and very good at giving medical advice, anything you should hear on here should not be misconstrued as us establishing a patient-physician relationship. Um, A pediatrician, child relationship, a doctor for older people, patient relationship, or whatever you call whatever the goose does these days, relationship. Sean, I don't know what you do. Anyway.
1: I don't either. (laughs) I ask myself that every day.
0: (laughs) We're not establishing a, a physician and patient relationship with you. We are just providing some education. Um, Hopefully, you'll learn a little bit from what we do today. Also, the views that we express today are not representative of our companies. They do not represent the views of um, anybody who may employ us now or in the future and uh, should not be misconstrued as us speaking for those companies. On the other hand, if any of our companies would like to sponsor us, we will accept that.
1: The end. Thank you, Ben. No surprise for 2020, this is the year that just keeps on giving with a certain topic that we just can't seem to get rid of. And with a little luck, maybe in the next two years, we might get rid of it at some point, but it keeps coming back around as new developments with COVID-19. The fun part is now we're into the treatment side of it. In the last couple of weeks, we had two vaccines be approved. Uh, I believe today Moderna's was approved. Is that correct by the full FDA or is that yesterday? My day behind?
0: I think it might be a day behind.
1: Oh, uh, but good news. We now have two vaccines that have been approved by the FDA and are being distributed. So let's jump into these vaccines because there is a lot uh, of questions surrounding them, uh, whether it has been a political issue or whatnot. Over the last several months, there's been questions ever since uh, Operation Warp Speed came into existence of A, would it produce a vaccine? B, would the vaccine do anything? C, would it be effective? D, would it kill anybody? So D is yet to be discovered, but we can jump into the rest of it now. So let's discuss the vaccines. I'm throwing it over to the smarter people here in the room. We're not in the room on my computer screen. Let's talk about the Pfizer vaccine. What do we know? So
0: both of these vaccines work very similarly. They have a little bit of a different mode of um, their transportation method. Uh, but these these are pretty uh, exciting vaccines to me. Uh, the technology behind how they're created is is so... Uh, I think it's it's going to revolutionize the way we do vaccines going forward. Um, and uh, so I, I'm really excited about these. Uh, I think the safety profile on these types of vaccines is going to be amazing. Um, I know the media has already kind of sensationalized a couple of um, uh, severe reactions that people have had, allergic reactions, but I uh, on the whole, I think these are going to be much safer than any of the vaccines that we've kind of already seen. What are your thoughts on that, Brian?
2: Yeah, no, I would just echo pretty much exactly what you said. I think um, you know the technology's newer for vaccines, but the the science behind it's been around for twenty five or thirty years now. So they've been doing a lot of gene therapy and cancer treatments and stuff with this same kind of science behind it. And it's awesome, and so I, I would agree with you that it's really exciting to see vaccines made in this method too. So, um, yeah, and I would echo the same thing that I think safety-wise is probably going to pan out to be probably one of the more s- safe versions of a vaccination we've
1: ever had. Yeah. So, explain this a little bit more. What what makes the development of this one different than others? So it, um, so it's made essentially
2: with something called a messenger RNA. So maybe for those less scientific folk, um, people know what DNA is. So DNA is what uh, is kind of the blueprint to make something called RNA. And there's a specific type of RNA called messenger RNA that encodes to your body how to make proteins. And proteins are then what lives out the activities in your cells. So what they found was there's a specific protein that's on the surface of the COVID vaccine called the spike protein. And they were able to isolate that spike protein, package it in a little um, jelly lipid material and inject it into you. Once it gets into you, that allows it to get inside of your cells. And the messenger RNA gets into your cell and tells your cell to make a bunch of copies of this spike protein. And then your body makes the spike protein, puts it on the surface of its cells, and that's what initiates the immune response. So then your immune system's like, oh, whoa, there's this weird thing getting presented to us. One, let's kill it. But (laughs) two, before we kill it completely, let's make some antibodies so that we can fight it better. And let's make some T cells, which are like memory cells, so that when we see it again, we can kill it even better the next time. And so that essentially is how the vaccine works is it encodes the, um, information to present it to your immune system so that you can be prepared for when you might actually see it in real life. That was really, I, I like the way that you presented that Brian. It,
1: yeah. Even I understood understand. it. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Perfect. Brian, if Matt was here, he would understand it. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. And
0: so with a normal vaccine, normal vaccine uh, with, uh, you know, maybe one of the previous vaccines that we've used. And and Brian is one of our pediatricians. So he he's kind of given out these vaccines left and right all day long. Oh, yeah. um, so w- with, with uh, some of our previous vaccines, how are those different then from uh, this new vaccine?
2: I think traditionally, a lot of the vaccines, instead of sending a message into your cell to make the protein, they would just inject the protein structure into your body um, without the message. Um, So that's just called an antigen. So they'd inject the antigen into you and expect your immune system to figure it out. Um, Hmm. But I think what's probably going to pan out is this is a safer way for your body to actually make the protein itself, stimulate its own response, rather than just having the antigen injected directly into you. So we'll see. Yeah. Yeah. I'm really excited about that. Um, I know one of the
0: concerns that people talk about with this is that, you know, we're messing with RNA, which sounds a lot like DNA. So is this going to cause some cool mutations? Like, am I going to get superpowers from this or am I going to grow like a third arm, but out of like my belly button? Like what's what's going to happen there? That would be sweet. Uh, right. Yeah. Yeah.
2: But uh, I don't think it's going to happen. Sorry.
0: Yeah, I'd have to get all new shirts, though. So <laughs> that'd, be, that'd be difficult.
2: Yeah, I don't think there's really anything to worry about. So like going back to that, how we kind of started talking about the vaccine, the, the DNA is the important part. That's like the blueprint for your body, right? And so we're not affecting that. We're like one step below that with the RNA. And the RNA is just a message. So um, uh, there's probably nothing to worry
1: about. So let's, let's go into the safety component of this. Um, that's one of the things that news outlets reported for the beginning of this, that we're just rushing things through, isn't safe. You guys are saying that this is actually a safer way of doing these. So what, what makes this safer and how are they able to do that in a shorter time frame than, than other vaccines? Um, So traditionally research
2: before a medicine or an immunization comes to market, it goes through what are called phases, which are just the different stages of trials. And traditionally phase zero is um, where they're just kind of exploring the study and it's not really reaching people. Phase one is they get a bunch of healthy volunteers to sign up and either take the medicine or get the injection. And they really focus on safety. So that being like How is it metabolized by your body how is it excreted Um, did you have any adverse events Um, so all the safety stuff then it moves to phase two which is where they actually kind of split into two groups so they get more people and they say this group gets the drug or the injection and this other group gets placebo and while they're still looking at safety they're now kind of looking at the effectiveness of the medicine compared to a placebo And then phase three is they start adding different types of populations. So they maybe they change the dose of the medicine, they combine it with other drugs, they look into different socioeconomic groups and um, different ethnicities and regions and all that kind of stuff. Um, And then stage four is after it's in the marketplace to continue doing study. So what happened with this is with a pandemic it had to be expedited. So traditionally you'd work through those phases strategically and it could take a couple years. But what we realized is we don't have a couple years here. So they stacked the phases on top of each other. So stages 2 and 3, which are the more lengthy stages, they stacked them on top of each other. So they gathered data about safety and efficacy at the same time, which I don't know. I I I kind of think that that should be maybe the way it just gets done all the time going forward. Um, But yeah. 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 I mean, it certainly made things go a lot faster.
0: Um, And you wonder why they couldn't do that. But I, again, you don't necessarily want to do your safety study on a large group of people all at once. Right. Right. Which is really kind of how they did this one. Um, I know they, they did a little bit early and then kind of sent it out to a whole bunch of folks, but yeah, but let's let's talk about kind of the number of people. You know, some people are going to say, well, there weren't very
2: many people in in the safety studies on this. do
0: you Do you know the numbers?
2: I do for the Pfizer vaccine because it's been out for about a week now, and it's mm-hmm. um, so we've been dealing with it on the clinical side. Um, so I think there was about forty four thousand people included in that wow. Pfizer study. And so about half of those got the vaccine and then half of them got the placebo. So somewhere between twenty to twenty-five thousand got the vaccination, Um, and for me that's pretty significant as far as gathering data on safety and efficacy. Right. Yeah. That's it's it's kind of impressive, I think, when you look at that. Yeah. If they were able to recruit that many people in such a short time. Yeah, and then the other component here too is like funding, right? So everybody wanted this vaccine done. So the government's (laughs) thrown tons of money at this thing, which traditionally there's not a ton of money thrown at this, right? So you can speed something up when there's a lot of money involved. Um, And yeah, and then the technology too. So, you know, we were talking about how we can, the scientists found a way to just create this mRNA message. Well, once you knew that science, then you just synthetically replicate that. RNA message over and over. So you don't have to wait for some virus to grow in a culture, and then get that culture media, right, so that it grows well, and then pull it out and go to the next step. It was, is just, you got the solution. Now, let's just synthetically make a ton of copies of it.
0: Right, right. And this one is not um, uh, egg based, like some of your other virus immunizations are where they have to be grown in uh, this egg based medium. Um, and so, yeah, we don't have that risk as well with this, which is kind of cool.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And talking about ingredients, so there's, there's not very many ingredients in this vaccine from Pfizer, at least, um, there's only like five or six ingredients. So it has the MRNA, it has the lipids that kind of circle around it so that it can fuse with your cell. Um, it has a, like salt and a potassium and some sugar and water. And that's basically it. So there's no wow. preservatives. There's no microchips. There's none of this weird stuff, and wait, that's part of the reason we, it has to get kept so cold. Yeah, but can but, we, can we get the microchips added if we want? Uh, you have to ask. You have to ask Bill Gates. I don't know. Oh, wait, was he the really one who said "box and get a microchip"? I think it was Bill Gates who was the one who said that, right? Yeah,
1: yeah. Uh, great. Yeah. Dang microchips! I don't know why we're trusting him about viruses. He can't keep his computers <laughs> from getting them, but people. <laughs> People are going to be way easier. Yeah. Nothing can go wrong there. No,
0: no. Um,
1: how how long would this process normally take to develop a vaccine like this? So if they stack those, those phases on top of each other, how long would that normally take? Traditionally, probably a couple of years. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I think at least, and and one of the big things really is trying to get just the recruitment. I mean, you know, paying that many people, to be part of these studies and just finding people who are willing to kind of subject themselves to this.
2: Um, Well, and then too, like the prevalence of the disease, right? So you could get to a lot. You can get a lot of people exposed to this virus because it's everywhere and everyone's getting it. Whereas if you're making a vaccine for polio and polio, isn't really around, it's going (laughs) to take you months and months and months to get enough people to be exposed to polio, to prove that the vaccine prevented it. Right. So the fact that there's tons of COVID out there, you could really expedite this and get your numbers quickly. Uh, another excellent point.
0: I want to tell you, I appreciate everybody who kind of contributed some questions. Um, I, I know there's a lot of questions out there. And so thank you for everybody who submitted questions this time.
1: Some people are having fairly significant symptoms for maybe a 24 hour period after the injection. And this is not new. To vaccines, there's several different vaccines where you do have a reaction to it. Why does that reaction happen? And is that a good or bad thing? Or does it matter?
2: Yeah, so the reaction goes back to how we were discussing how the immunization works. So once it once your cells put that spike protein out on the surface, and your immune system starts responding, um, that immune response is what gives you the symptoms. So, in Pfizer's safety data, somewhere between 80 to 90% of patients who were age 16 to 55, so that younger group, ended up having some sort of mild um, injection site pain, maybe a rash, maybe a low grade fever. It was a little less prominent in the older population, so more like 50% of patients um, who are over 55. But that's still, I mean, basically everyone, you're getting a needle poked into you, so it's going to hurt a little. And then you're getting an immune response which is what, what you want. So, um, and then a smaller number of people had those more systemic symptoms. So headache, fatigue, fevers, stuff like that um, was more around the kind of 40% range. So, and then the, se- the really severe stuff was extremely rare. I think I read that there was only four... Serious adverse events out of those forty-four thousand injections, and none of them were death, which is a good thing, right? Right.
0: And and then a couple of things that we've seen so far. I think um, I think the first day or two when this vaccine was first uh, released in Great Britain, there were two folks who had um, anaphylactic reactions, and then uh, Sean
2: sent me something today that yeah, um, there is a guy in Alaska who happened
1: to yeah today. in Alaska
0: who also had yeah. that happen.
2: Yeah, from what i read, the two guys in Britain had a known like history of allergies and reactions to stuff, and so it seemed a little more less worrisome. But from what I read, the, the, the guy in Alaska, he, just, he had no history of allergies to anything, and he developed his symptoms like 10 or 15 minutes after his injection. So um, I think that is maybe a little more significant than the, the two in Great Britain.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And again, um, you know, developing allergic reactions to something is certainly going to be uh, not uncommon. Lots of people allergically react to things. Um, hopefully, you know, in the future, we c- we can able to to monitor this pretty well closely and, and keep an eye on this. But do you think this poses a significant risk
2: to the um, population in general? I don't think so. So for me, one component of that answer is going back to ingredients. When there's only a couple ingredients and it's basically sugar, water, salt, and then the message, there's not much for your body to react to or have an allergic reaction to compared to some of our older vaccines that had additives and preservatives and all that kind of stuff. And then I think the other thing is, you know, we talked about there was 44,000 people in this Pfizer study. And so about Twenty-two thousand got the actual vaccine, and there was not a single report of anaphylaxis. So I think that as time goes by, this one outlier is probably going to be a very small percentage, and probably nothing we need to worry about.
0: Hmm. That's a good point. It's a very good point, Doctor Palmer. I think we had a question about uh, this uh, vaccine causing infertility in women. I've I've heard it. I've actually heard it both ways, men and women.
1: Okay. Um, I've heard women because this physician theorized that there is a spike protein that causes the woman to grow a placenta in, in early childbearing. And this is, they're afraid that, that this may, I guess, prevent the body from forming that because of the, the, um, you know, preventing the spike protein.
2: Yeah. So the truth of it is the, the protein that is responsible for making the placenta tissue while it does have a very minute similarity, it's a super small string of amino acids that is the same as this spike protein from this COVID um, virus. And so it's really not uh, a significant volume that's the same. And it, from like actual immunology people who have looked into this, it's not significant enough to actually cause your immune system to respond in any way. So the other thing is I looked at some of the data on um, if there were pregnant women included in the Pfizer study. And there was, I think, something like 23 or 24 women who either, so they screened everybody for pregnancy before they did their vaccinations with a, a urine test to see if they were pregnant. But obviously, that's not a 100% test. So some people <laughs> slipped through. So they got their first or second dose of vaccine and then found out they were pregnant. Um, Or, um, they chose to become pregnant shortly after getting their vaccine. And so half of those 24 people got the actual vaccine, right? The other half got placebo. So there was 10 people who became pregnant and they all, um, they all were fine. None of them had any issues with creating a placenta and getting their baby to grow. That's good news. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Dynamite research.
0: I was trying to think of like a good way to, uh, to kind of think of this, like h- how does this even work? Um, and you know, it's like, it's like, uh, your immune system is looking for great Danes and then it sees a Chihuahua and you're thinking, you know, is it going to attack the Chihuahua because it's also a dog, but it's obviously the Chihuahua's. is, too small and too tiny to be even close to a great Dane. it's never going to confuse that and that's kind of how i think of it like it's looking for great danes it's it sees the chihuahua and it's like yeah, okay that's a dog but it's not one, yeah and the it's kind of, the it's, kind of dog
2: i'm looking for it's probably even more like it's a bird like it's not even the same species <laughs> like the right, similarity right. is so small that like i'm sure you could find some genetic match between a dog and a bird somewhere way back right so or prairie dog there it is got it in the
1: name <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um another question our friends at across the pond sports podcast james and katie they asked is this a one-time shot or will we need one every year do we know this yet so i
0: have some thoughts on this uh and so i'm going to share mine first and then dr liddell will come in behind me and share the actual evidence and his smartness so uh let's let's do it that way so um First of all, it's a series of two shots, both of these are. so one and then a, so one is given on what we call day zero, and then 21 days later you get your second shot. And we think that it's really going to start being fairly effective about a week um, after that second shot. Um, there is some evidence that it kind of helps right after the first shot. Um, but we, we think that the immune system is going to be start reacting fairly well after that second shot about a week later. And then we're gonna start developing some of those T cells, the, those memory cells, um, anywhere from, I think, uh, four to six weeks later is kind of my understanding. Um, but, uh, so a series of two shots, the coronavirus is different from your influenza virus. It typically doesn't have, so far from what we've seen, again, um, all this is constantly changing, but it doesn't have the um, mutational properties that that influenza virus has. And um, it would have to undergo a fairly radical change to these spike proteins for it to no longer be effective. So I think all that's possible uh, and certainly not outside the realm of possibility. But from what I can see, as long as this vaccine can stimulate a strong enough immune response, this should last for anywhere from five to 10 years um, before potentially needing booster shots like we use with like, uh, tetanus um, or sometimes with pneumonia um, so my anticipation is that this will be a one-time shot with maybe a booster uh, sometime down the road but most likely not an every
2: year sort of thing what yeah I like on? I like that I think I would probably have answered it really similarly um, I think that maybe the devil's advocate point would be what about people who have gotten like real COVID instead of the vaccine so far, and how long did they continue to have antibodies after they were um, infected with COVID? And we maybe have a little better look at that than we do the vaccine, just because the actual virus has been circulating a lot longer. Um, but even that, the data is really sparse. So you know, there's there's probably some evidence that you continue to have antibodies circulating a good three to six months after your infection. I think the same would be expected for the vaccine, if not even longer. So, time will tell. Hopefully, by the time your antibodies start to wane, COVID is no longer a p- pandemic, and it's a thing of the past, and maybe we don't even need another dose in 5 to 10 years, but right. who knows?
1: Who knows? That's good. That's it for the listener questions.
2: Wow. So I have a couple of thoughts in regards to kids, since I'm a pediatrician. So right now, the Pfizer vaccine is um, has the emergency use authorization for ages 16 and above. They did have some patients down to the age of 12 in their initial study, but it wasn't enough for them to approve it. Um, Moderna, who is planning on doing additional studies in adolescents 12 and above, is planning to gather some data too. I think our hope as pediatricians is that we have approval to vaccinate before school starts in the fall of 2021. Um, Whether that ends up coming to fruition, I don't know, but I think that's a good goal to shoot for um, so that kids can go back to school safely. The problem is nobody's gonna sign their young child up for a study most people are more comfortable with their adolescents being involved in a study. So getting the data younger than 12 years old is even going to be even harder. So I don't know. I I hope it happens, but um, there's a strong possibility, I guess, that the elementary school kids don't get a vaccine by next school year. And um, to me, clinically, that presents a problem as a pediatrician. And so I I think that brings up a good point. Uh,
0: Dr. Liddell, how... How dangerous is COVID kind of, um, being shown to be
2: in our younger kids? So overall, it's much less severe than adults. The rates of hospitalizations of significant side effects or death is much lower. Um, there is a subset of kids that, um, are at risk and the numbers are closer to adults. And those are kids with chronic medical problems, such as cardiopulmonary disease, um, so outside of them it's usually not as severe the problem we've been seeing clinically is we don't really even know what it looks like compared to other common colds that small children pass around every other winter and so we've found ourselves essentially testing everybody who has cold symptoms and personally I can say I've seen the gamut of symptoms as far as who's testing positive for COVID and who's negative so I think there's a lot to be learned there But hopefully um, that data continues and the kids are um, maybe not as risky as adults.
1: What what are the most common symptoms you're seeing in kids? So you said you've seen a bunch of them. Are there a most common set that you see? Yeah, traditionally, like the textbook
2: answer from data across the country is that um, it's a febrile illness with primarily respiratory symptoms. There's a small set of people who have GI symptoms like vomiting and diarrhea too. What I've seen clinically, which is a much smaller sample size in outpatient clinic is it can be anything from congestion and a runny nose to full-on 103 fever, sore throat, body aches, chills. And I've seen everything kind of in between. So it's really hard to know.
1: Hmm. One thing we've heard about kids from the beginning is that they don't seem to spread this as much, uh, either among themselves or spreading to adults. Can you speak to that?
2: Yeah, so that was the initial thought was that the evidence that came out of some of the early studies was that kids didn't spread it as easily. There's been some more recent data that has maybe pushed against that um, thought process a little. There was one study that showed that the viral load so the amount of virus in a child's nose and upper airway was much higher than um, compared to an adult um so you could extrapolate out that if they have more virus it's easier for them to spread around the other part is they've actually been able to do some studies through daycare facilities so there was a study recently published um, out of a couple daycares that they combined data in in utah and basically what happened is they they did contact tracing for kids who were positive to COVID and they followed those kids and tried to figure out, well, who did they end up passing it to? Um, and about 25% of the kids passed it to a non-facility person. So that's not quite as high as some of the adult stuff I've seen as far as rates of transmission. Um, And then of that 25%, the vast majority of those were household contacts. So they brought it back home and the kid was small. And so it was really hard to isolate a kid. So there's a caregiver who's naturally around the kid all the time. And that caregiver is the one who has the problem. So, and then there, there was actually one adult who ended up contracting it from the child who brought it home, who ended up getting so sick, they had to be hospitalized. So, the data is maybe swinging the other way a little now that we're a little concerned that kids bring it home. They share it with primarily their immediate family and caregivers, but possibly even outside of the household, if they don't quarantine well.
1: Is, is there an age range they're finding where those rates of transmission go from them being, you know, a kid, Uh, giving somebody else to more being on the scale of an adult, giving to somebody else, like just, just from anecdotally things I hear, like when you get into like young teens or preteen, maybe that's where that switch occurs again, that's just anecdotally where I I hear them passing it more. Do you know anything about that? Yeah. I think the middle school and high school
2: settings are more risky than elementary school and daycare preschool. Okay. We don't know why that is yet. No, we don't have a good reason for it. Um, that's just kind of the way the numbers are going right now. Okay. I think some of it might be that, you know, when stuff shut down, schools shut down and secondary school needed to get back faster, probably just for academic reasons. Like you can't have high schoolers sitting at home doing nothing. You know, you can get away with it a little more with a toddler, or young elementary school. And so I think maybe the older kids got, back around each other faster. And so we have more data there, but hmm. I don't know if that's that's true. It's just kind of a thought.
0: Hmm. Oh, that's, that's interesting. Um, what are your thoughts then on, the, I don't know if we're gonna be able to get this out before Christmas, but uh, you know, on, oh, on we Christmas are. gathering. Oh, we are, okay. Well, Merry Christmas, everybody. Maybe. For those of you who don't <laughs> celebrate, I'm. that's okay. I still say Merry Christmas. Um, also, what are your thoughts on gatherings for Christmas, and what are we what are we doing there? What are you counseling your patients on?
2: I think the biggest thing to think about is the risk of the other people you're going to be around. So, hmm. and you can maybe speak to adult risk, but from what I know, like 65 and above, and those who are have chronic medical problems or obesity and diabetes and those kind of things they're the risky people. And traditionally, when you get together with family for the holidays, it's to get together with grandma and grandpa. Mm-hmm. And um, and like we talked about, sometimes the younger kids have really mild symptoms or they're asymptomatic, and there is data that they can pass it to household contacts. So I, I think you just have to be really careful and make sure everybody in the family is comfortable with what you're doing. You can wear a mask, you know, the hardest thing is then you sit down at a dinner table for a half an hour and everybody takes their masks off. Um, so you, I think, you know, people ask me this in clinic too, and I don't know what the answer is. I think the answer is making sure everyone's comfortable with the decision and that you would be comfortable with what could possibly happen if some at risk person got it because of you. Um, and that's a hard answer for, I think it's just different for everybody. Yeah. I, I like that answer
0: it's uh, you know making sure that everybody who's involved is kind of aware of the risks and willing to accept the risk of of infection and um, and then limiting that as much as possible I think the CDC is kind of recommending 10 people or less and trying to do as much stuff outdoors as possible you know here in Arizona it's easy we just wear our shorts and flip flops and we're outdoors during Christmas. Uh, you know, if you might be in someplace awfully cold, like Idaho Mm -hmm.
2: might be a little more difficult. Yeah. We Uh, are not going outside except (laughs) maybe play in the snow if it snows, but (laughs) sounds so terrible. (laughs) Um,
0: so, uh, you know, trying, trying to limit that spread and, and limit the, uh, the amount of kind of stale air also, you know, try not to be indoors as much as possible and limiting uh, proximity. You know, we're already kind of seeing the effects of Thanksgiving, certainly here in Arizona, and I think across across the rest of the United States, Um, hospitals are filling up,
2: ICUs are really filling up. It's um, it's getting a little scary. So yeah, and the other thing you could think about doing if you're like adamant that you need to go visit grandma and grandpa is try and like self quarantine for two weeks before you go to grandma's house. Right. So if school's out for winter break, then stay at home and don't be around stuff to make sure you're not getting symptoms and then go visit your family because you know, you're safe Um, versus, you know, being out and about at school and work and out in the community and then going to grandma's house the next day. So, yeah. And then I think travel's part of it too, like getting your family who's already exposed to each other in a car and driving, across town to see grandma and grandpa's different than going to the airport flying across the country you know rental cars cabs all that stuff just to get there right so Um,
0: Dr. Liddell do you have anything else that you want to share with us as far as um, your
2: thoughts on the COVID vaccine or COVID and kids Um, one regarding the vaccine would be um, so in pediatrics we deal with pregnant moms or lactating moms or nursing moms. Mm -hmm. So there's been some questions about that. Um, I can't speak to the pregnancy stuff as much as maybe an OB-GYN, but as a pregnant woman, you do have the option to get the vaccine. And, um, and there could be some potential benefit there to protect your fetus. So it's worth talking about with your OB-GYN for those moms who are nursing. Um, We don't have enough data from the research that was done to say that it's safe. Um, But the assumption is that it's since it's not a live virus, it goes back to this technology again, since it's not a live virus, it's probably not going to get into your breast milk. And therefore, it's probably not going to get to baby. So it should be fine. In theory, we just don't have the data to prove it. So that's another one where... I think if you're a nursing mom or thinking about getting pregnant, just talk to your doctor about the options and it might be worth it depending on your community rates and stuff. I I think that's a great point. Yeah, always, if you have questions about yourself personally,
0: um, certainly talk to your own physician, your own OB doctor, um, your own primary care physician, your own pediatrician. Uh, I know uh, the American College of Gynecology has kind of come out and said, hey, we don't think a pregnancy test should be required before this vaccine, and we are fairly confident that this is going to be safe. Like you just said, we're fairly confident, it's safe in pregnant and lactating women. Uh, we just can't, we can't guarantee it, but we think that's not a reason to kind of withhold. So,
2: totally good.
0: Um, I think we kind of hit all the the major myths I heard. You know, it's not gonna, it's not gonna cause. It's not going to affect your genetic code. Shouldn't cause mutations. Um, you know, there's some rumors out there uh, that it's going to cause autoimmune diseases. Uh, again, that wasn't really seen in any of the studies. It should cause a small autoimmune autoimmune. Uh, it should cause a small immune reaction, not autoimmune. Autoimmune would be your immune is attacking yourself. So it's really more of an immune reaction. But again, like we talked about it, those are going to cause some symptoms first 24, 48 hours, and then uh, we we, sh- we don't expect it
2: to have any effect on somebody who's already got an autoimmune condition. Yeah, totally. Yeah, normal immune response. Um, you know, a, a somewhat related question I heard recently was, well, how how does this mRNA that once it gets injected into you know what type of cells to go into? Um, how do we know it's not going to get into circulation and then go to your brain cells or your heart cells and then have an immune reaction, immune, normal immune response, but in the wrong type of tissue? Um, and I think that the most reasonable answer is it's getting injected into your arm, right? So <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's not getting injected into your bloodstream. It's getting injected into a muscle. And there's basically nothing in your deltoid muscle except skeletal muscle, and maybe a few nerves. And so it's all going to get absorbed by those cells. And that's where your immune reaction is going to be. And that's why everybody has a sore arm, because that's where you got the shot. And that's why not very many people, if none at all, are having encephalitis or cardiac arrhythmias or whatever. Um, so it right. seems like a reasonable answer to that whole like immune response thing and people being concerned about how that plays out. Yeah, uh, that's an excellent point. Uh, we we
0: typically have shied away from injecting really much of anything directly like into the brain um, or into the brain stem, you know, maybe a little bit easier to reach. Um,
2: so yeah. Yeah, let's uh, keep that up.
0: Yeah, and, and for those of you who, for whatever reason you get that option, like they're like, would you like this in your deltoid or kind of right in the brain stem? Just pick the deltoid. I, I think it's that's that's an easier option all the time. For sure. Great, um, Dr. Palmer. Uh, Goose Palmer, sorry, Goose Palmer. Any thoughts today?
1: I got nothing. <laughs> I, I had well, the easiest job on this podcast today. I just asked a couple of questions and sit here and listen to smarter people talk.
0: You did phenomenal. You did phenomenal.
1: Thank you. Thank you.
0: Hey, I, I wanna I wanna give a little quick shout out here to uh, to Dr. Um, uh, Dr. Liddell, he and his wife form an amazing medical team. Uh, she, she's—if you can believe it—as smart as he is, she's the better half. She really is. Um, That's the truth. <laughs> and so uh, they have—they
1: have.
0: <laughs> <laughs> have formed an unstoppable team, uh, and they actually have their own podcast and their own website, and uh, it's called. It's the doctor Perfect. the dietitian.com Perfect. So it, don't forget both of the does the doctor and the uh phenomenal um, uh, you can follow them on instagram where they do some amazing stuff there uh, and uh, the, these these two really have kind of put together this this awesome company here uh, that gives advice on um, on kids who struggle with eating and um, and some nutrition coaching and just taking care of kids in general, which can be uh, an amazingly challenging thing. And uh, so I would encourage you to check them out. And um, uh, Dr. Liddell, anything else that you want to say about what you're doing kind of with this, this side project here?
2: Yeah, Ben, thanks. That was really nice. Appreciate it. You made us sound great. Um, Yeah, so my better half is a registered dietitian. So nutrition and pediatrics is what we kind of specialize in. So um, our podcasts are geared toward kind of common medical and um, nutritional topics for kids. Um, We primarily do like feeding coaching. So if you have picky eaters or stubborn eaters or kids who are underweight, that kind of stuff. We have an awesome six-week class we call Family Feeding Coaching, um, and it'll get you kind of turned around and squared away, so you can get info about that on our website. Um, and then, yeah, we're on social media on Facebook and Instagram, so
1: check us out. And is your podcast also called The Doctor and the Dietitian? It is, yeah. What what platforms is it on? Uh, it's on Apple, Google, and Spotify. Awesome. We'll be sure to
2: check you out. Yeah, maybe you can throw a link in your show notes or something and then we'll steal all your
1: followers. There will absolutely... Hey, there's no stealing, it's sharing.
0: Yeah, sharing
2: is caring, you baby. It's st- holiday
1: season. You say steal like they're going to leave us. They're not going to leave us. <laughs> Why would they ever leave? Come on, you guys rock. But we want to share them with you. Yes, Thanks.
0: and we, so there will definitely be a link in our show notes. Um, and again, that website is the, the dietitian.com. Uh, And uh, again, you guys are phenomenal. Dr. Liddell, I can't thank you enough for coming on, spending some of your time with us, sharing some knowledge,
2: lending some legitimacy to our podcast. Great Uh, truth bombs you dropped on us today. Thank you. Cool, guys. Yeah, it was an honor. Appreciate it. You guys are rocking it. Keep
1: it up. This show is only made possible not only because Dr. Imes and I fund this, but also because we have affiliates that help us fund this and we love our affiliates and we have some big news. I am way excited to announce this. Probably so excited. I can't even do it. So Ben, you do groove. Life
0: is back. Yes! Yes. Yes. Groove Life has joined us again. They have reached out and said, Hey, we love what you guys are doing and we want to give you money. Or something along those lines. Anyway, uh, Groove Life makes rings, watch bands, and belts. The V-back and... belts. Okay, the... guys, let's talk about the belts real quick. Let's be real. Even if even if we weren't getting paid to do this, I would probably talk about the belts. These are the only belts I wear to work anymore. I got rid of all my other belts. I love these belts so much. They're so easy. They just they're like magnetic, magical magnets, and they just like go on. I've got one black one. I got one brown one. That's all I wear to work. Not, I mean, I wear those to hold my pants up. I wear the rest of my clothes to work. But the Groove Life belts are phenomenal. I cannot say enough good things about them. I mean, I wear my Groove Life ring all the time. It's a fantastic uh, silicone molded ring. Um, I haven't got a Groove Life watch band yet.
1: So I have them. they're uh, phenomenal. And actually, they just re- okay. redid them. Um, they even have some awesome leather ones. That are like, what? Yeah, they're the silicone on the inside, the leather on the outside. Legit. Dude. These guys are Christmas present. Products. Hashtag
0: Christmas present. Mm-hmm. That's what I need. So, um, we have a new code for you. If you're thinking about uh, buying from Groove Life in the new future, the code is DDG POD. So, DDG, Doc, Doc, Goose, Pod without the cast. Okay. DDG, Pod. All one word. And it gives you like two thousand percent off. So I think they pay you to uh to buy their stuff. It's great. Actually, how much does it give them off? I don't
1: I probably it's should know this, but fifteen percent. One Fifteen
0: percent. It's that's great. close to one thousand. Close. Okay. So if you don't get your full two thousand percent off, at least fifteen percent off, I think that's still a screaming deal. Uh I, I would buy these things even without the the uh, podcast discount, but Having that podcast discount makes this that much sweeter of a deal. Mm -hmm.
1: And I I understand out there if you're confused because it was just last episode that we told you that you can't use your uh, Groove Life code anymore because they canceled their their affiliate program. Literally the day after we released that podcast, I got the email saying that they want us back in. So here we go. We're back and we're excited. Groove Life, you are awesome. Guys, go check them out. Groovelife.com and enter DDGPOD at checkout. Perfect. Also, in our arsenal of our affiliates, we just have some awesome affiliates. We do. We've talked about them before. We're serious about this. It's catching on. The fad has not gone full-blown yet, but it's on its way. This is the CBD fad. It's... I don't even wanna call it a fad. It's a growing movement because you know what? The more we find out about it, the more we're able to do with, the, with CBD, the more that people are getting their hands on it, they're seeing it has phenomenal benefits. We don't just say this because they pay us money. We say this. <laughs> I mean, I do say it because of that, but I'm telling you, I use the products daily. I rely on them daily. I love it. I would not stop them. Uh, I, I love my uh, CBD gum.
0: It, that's my kind of go-to there. Uh, it's it's wonderful. It helps kind of calm some of those uh, uh, pre-meeting jitters that you can get sometimes. And also makes your breath smell nice and fresh. So,
1: <laughs> so go check out Proze. That's P-R-O-Z-E. You can check out the Yippies gum that Ben was just talking about. I use Shield, which is your daily immunity tincture, and Nods, which is your sleep aid. They work so incredibly well. Um, so proze.com. You can also go to our website, ddgpodcast.com, and you can see links to all of our affiliates there. Use promo code DDG15 with them to get 15% off. Nice. Lastly, our affiliate Rad, we do blogs for them talking about different injuries. So if you want to see that and how you can use their myofascial release tools for different uh, pain complaints and injuries in the body, you can go to our website at ddgpodcast.com and look at the blog. You'll see all of the Rad series of blogs. Go to their site, radroller.com. That's R-A-D-R-O-L-L-E-R.com. Promo code there is DDG15. Some of the best myofascial release tools, foam rollers on the market. I use them in clinic all the time. I send patients there all the time. They're phenomenal. And we got a special project coming up with them soon. Be on the lookout for that. Go purchase some Christmas presents. We just gave you three options. <laughs> Indeed. Indeed. Oh, by the way, real quick, going back to pros. This is a long Affiliate commercial, and it's worth it, especially for the uh, Yeah. Pros, they want you to see what life is like on their sleep aid nods. So they have a five day challenge. They are giving you five nights of nods, which is their number one bestseller for free. I know Ben is silent with shock right now. I just shock and awed him.
0: What? <laughs> five nights for free.
1: Technically, you just pay the $3 shipping and you get it for free. free? Yes, for free. What? Go to our website, ddgpodcast.com. You'll see an advertisement for it. It's phenomenal. Go do it. It's three bucks for shipping. Prove it to yourself. See what great night's sleep you can have. That's phenomenal. I don't even know where to go from there. I don't know where Uh to
0: go. I think typically this is the part where we say something wise and we wrap up the show. We usually skip the saying something wise part and then we wrap up. But we wrap up the show. Yeah, exactly. Exactly.
1: Well, in that case, and
0: since since Dr. Liddell has already turned in uh, his headset for the night, uh, we don't have anything wise left to say. So let's, let's wrap everything up in a nice, neat little bow. Today, you learned about Christmas presents that you should buy. For your family. And that's probably about it. Uh, Just kidding. We also talked about uh, the whole vaccine. That's coming out with COVID. Uh, We think this is going to be phenomenal. It's slowly rolling out. To a a local hospital near you. Um, It's amazing new technology. It appears like it's going to be very, very safe. Shouldn't cause mutations. Should be really safe for most people. To be able to get this. Certainly if you have questions. Talk to your own physician. Um, But for me. I've already signed up, I'm in line, I'm ready to get this, I'm ready to go, Uh, I'm super excited, I'm encouraging all my patients to do it. Um, I think this is gonna be a wonderful thing, so, uh, and I've heard at some places, you can pay an extra $15 and get the tracking device at the same time. Uh, Ask your local healthcare provider if you can get your tracking device too. It does not come standard, but for an extra fee, I think you can get it, so. just a- ask if that's available. Um, otherwise, we encourage you to be safe this these holiday seasons with the uh, New Year's and Christmas and and all the things kind of happening Hanukkah. around here. We're Hanukkah. Boxing yes. Day. Uh, we also, ooh, Boxing Day is a good one. We also have Chinese New Year coming up here uh, and fairly soon. So, um, you know. Like the whole month. Uh, yeah, usually kind of end of January, beginning of February. Uh, and so just when you're gathering with family, be safe please. We encourage you to. And uh, as always, thanks for listening. We appreciate you taking the time to listen to us on 2X Speed on uh, uh, Spotify or Apple Podcast. Uh, We we understand. We sound like chipmunks, but uh, at least we're entertaining chipmunks and slightly educational. Anyway, I'm Dr. Benjamin Ives. Thanks for listening.
1: I'm Dr. Sean Palmer. We will see you on the next episode. Thank you for listening to the Doc, Doc
2: Goose Podcast. If you like what you heard, please leave a review to help others discover us. Visit our website at www.ddgpodcast.com to read the show notes, blogs, view videos, and interact with the cast. You can also follow
1: us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at the DDG Podcast. If you have an Apple device, you can easily access the podcast by saying, "Hey Siri, play the Doc, Doc Goose Podcast."